0: welcome back to Pat and rod save the world I'm Roderick Macon and I'm Pat Brown on this lovely week ending 15 November 2014 radio so we're going to uh, we're going to do a bit of a comparison between two
1: stories uh, this week in the uh, in the news that might not seem readily uh, comparable uh, but we were having a, a bit of a discussion over it over a, a very late breakfast um, this afternoon Um... And, uh, and we thought that there were some, uh, some worthwhile things to talk about. So uh, to start with, just to get straight into it, um, one, of the, uh, one of the more uplifting stories of the human race this week, um, or this year really, um, has been the, uh, the, Rosetta, the Rosetta mission, um, which was uh, putting a, a probe onto a comet uh, and um, uh, transmitting back data uh, to, uh, to scientists back on Earth about, um, well, increasing our understanding of the universe
0: and, uh, and the makeup of the
1: solar system we live in.
0: Yeah, let me, I've got the Guardian article on it and it, it's always fun to talk about the ginormous numbers that go along with any of these kinds of space missions. Um, first of all, I think that uh, the statistic of landing this thing Um, It was accomplished for 1 billion euros. It's an important uh, uh, number to remember there, uh, listeners. Remember that. 1.5 billion dollars in today's uh, conversion rates.
1: That's how much this amazing uh, advance of the human race cost.
0: Let's not foreshadow too heavily. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It blasted off 10 years ago in 2004, and it basically travelled more than 6 billion kilometres to catch up with the comet, which is orbiting the sun at speeds of one hundred and thirty thousand kilometers per hour. Um now I think It uh, it had to slingshot around the
1: earth three times to build up speed. Yep, To catch up with the uh, with the comet. I didn't know that. Yeah. And that's so from the,
0: uh, that's from a Washington Post article which I read. The comet is moving at 18 kilometers per second, to put it into that particular frame of reference. And the actual touchdown took place five hundred and ten million kilometers from Earth. So I mean, this is just an incredible feat of mathematical and engineering ingenuity to, to manage to place um to place a piece of man-made re- machinery or human-made machinery on such a fast-moving object is pretty goddamn phenomenal um now i mean should we talk about the reason why it's um uh like it's so important um, oh, okay um so I don't understand much about these things, but what I have been able to glean is that um, comets are always um, stuffed full of ice. And um, one of the theories about how life began on Earth was that there were the building blocks for life delivered by a comet um, that struck the Earth. And a comet is, of course, something that uh, revolves around the solar system. And it basically, a study of the data from the comet gives us a really um, good set of, of, of data to understand the origins of the solar system, yeah. what it's made up of, and all
1: of that. Yeah, the idea is that it's sort of, like as it's traveling around these vast distances, like it's picking up uh, molecules sort of as it goes. So you can, you can find stuff out about areas that, you know, that are so far away that you wouldn't be able to get a probe to.
0: Uh, actually, yeah, right. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and that's just a fascinating idea that um, yeah. comets are the kind of pollen of the solar system <laughs> if you want to get poetic. Um, and it's, you know, just a really interesting thing to know about. Or possibly the bees spreading pollen. <laughs> yeah, actually. That's the probably a more accurate analogy. Um, so amazing stuff. And Rod and I were discussing... Um, why it is that there doesn't seem to be a, a lot of votes in um, expanding the horizons of, of humanity's knowledge. Yeah,
1: I mean, there have been some sort of major scientific advances over the, the past decade. Obviously, um, we've had uh, this Rosetta mission uh, from Europe uh, and staying in Europe, we had the, uh, the Hadron Collider finding the, um, the Higgs particle, uh, which was pretty uh, outstanding. Yeah, um, we had um, we've had uh, the Mars rover to uh, to have that little uh, little buggy drawing dicks
0: on the Martian surface is pretty cool. That is um, amazing. And then um, there was this recent Indian mission. Yep. that um, it was uh, it launched a Mars orbiter, and so the Indians in November five two thousand and thirteen ran the launch. And it only cost $74 million. That's astonishing. Like, that's less than a billion dollars. That's nothing well, in terms
1: of... Yeah, an order of magnitude,
0: less yeah. than a billion. Yeah. And of course, it's not landing on the thing. It's an orbiter. But the fact that you can now launch um, in- intrastellar... Would, is that what you'd call it? Intrastellar if you're not leaving the solar system? I honestly couldn't tell you. Okay. <laughs> well, let's stick with that regardless. <laughs> the fact that you can le- basically launch a probe that explores our own solar system for less than $100 million bucks, to my mind <laughs> is a pretty fucking amazing bargain. Yeah.
1: Well done, India, on that.
0: Yeah, and when you compare that to the American statistics, you kind of get a sense of where NASA's at these days with its famed bureaucratic bloat. To do the same thing, um, it took them five years as opposed to the Indians' 18 months. And NASA's uh, project cost $671 million, as opposed to the $74 million. Yeah. Um, so that gives you a sense of the where the previous leader of the free world in terms of space exploration is at.
1: Yeah, and so we sort of thought that was interesting in terms of uh, while there have been some cool things going on, there doesn't seem to be um, the sort of groundswell of uh, of popular support and political will Mm. um, to really, you know, uh, push us forward. And it it seems to be, uh, I'm not sure if it's just that there have been some more things in the headline over the past uh, three or four years. Um, Perhaps it's it's growing a little bit just in that time. But, you know, for most of my lifetime that I've been paying attention to these sort of things, it uh, just doesn't seem to be there. Um, and you go back, uh, I was mentioning this morning, you go back to the, uh, to the 60s with, with Kennedy saying, by the end of this decade we'll have someone on the moon, um, and they did. Um, and uh, sadly we've sort of come to the conclusion that it was less a, uh, a groundswell of popular support and political will um, to advance the human race as it was a, um,
0: <laughs> a bit of just uh, tribal a tribal rivalry between the West and the Russians. yeah. Yeah, so between
1: uh, between Russia and the uh, and the US or, or the West in general, um, Soviet Union, not Russia, sorry. Um, and um, and so would, yeah, wondering, is it going to take something like that sort of, uh, of rivalry and just people trying to, uh, to or countries trying to one-up each other that is going to push the next
0: uh, major advances into, uh, into space? We could get enthusiastic about that considering how many players are now involved in yeah. the space race. If you want to even call it a race at this point, there yeah. does seem to be some competitiveness yeah. in the sense you've got the Russians, the Indians, the Chinese... And the Americans, and the all in, and the Europeans. Yeah. How dare I forget them? All involved in a really big way. Yeah. Um, that seems to me to be an intensification of competition, if competition is proportionate to the number of players involved.
1: Yeah, and then you even have the
0: um, the uh, the private operators as well. Uh, so you do. Um, who are really at this point an adjunct to the government space programs in the sense that the, at least SpaceX, which is the leader in the field, is um, is really a contractor that acts on behalf of the government. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with the, sto- the sorry state of the American program at the moment, where American astronauts can only get to the International Space Station by way of a Russian lift. <laughs> Um, it actually makes a lot of sense that the private enterprise guys are starting to make a move into the area themselves at yeah. the moment.
1: Like I believe,
0: I think it's Mars One is uh, the uh, the privately
1: owned push to colonise Mars, and I'm pretty sure that's uh, German
0: in origin, but I could be wrong. Honestly, I could not tell you. Um, that's uh, it's an interesting question about um, uh, there is a... Sweepstakes going on at the moment where people are applying to, to be part of a Mars yeah a, I'm pretty a sure it's a that one man yeah. yeah a manned mission
1: I've uh, to Mars. I've, uh, I've read articles in the past basically claiming that there's no chance of that one succeeding um, but it's right it's sure not, yeah it's not stopping people from putting their names forward that's for sure so but like, yeah so with with all of this going on um, you know we were
0: we were feeling all pretty optimistic and, uh, and happy and shit. Um, We'd also watched a documentary about the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, which was created for a cost of $4 billion and found the Higgs boson particle. Particle Fever is the name of the documentary. It's a pretty interesting thing if you've got any passing um, interest in physics, which both Rod and I don't normally, but certainly it was worth a look.
1: Yeah, Um, And, you know, just things like that, just advancing... Uh, advancing the uh, the knowledge base of the human race
0: and our place in the universe. It's, yeah, um, not to mention all of the tangible, um, yeah. tangible side effects like Teflon, um, <laughs> you know, microwaves. All of these things were invented partially due to the work done on the uh, US space program.
1: Yeah,
0: so optimism, happy, great, right?
1: Then and, yeah, then just. Uh, I think, you know, the other sort of story in the week, uh, in the news this week, was
0: uh, just the tip. Just the tip. Um, So, that's a fairly uh, juvenile analogy um, to describe America's foray into the Middle East. We are what we are, Pat. We are what we are, yeah, we're juvenile. And uh, just like a teenage boy with a young lady on a Friday night, the Americans swore black and blue that they weren't going to get heavily involved uh, with ground troops yeah. in the Middle East. No um, ground troops at all, I believe, was the first uh, promise. Yes, of course. Yeah. All right. Um, um, well, no boots on the ground. No boots on the ground. Yeah. Fast forward to November seven. Um, and the White House announced that they were going to send 1,500 more troops, advisors, of yeah, course. Just military just advisors, advisors. Just there to advise. That's right. Um, which would take the number of troops, I believe, to 3,200. Just the tip. Just the tip.
1: Because uh, I was trying to have a quick look on uh, on Google, but wasn't able to find anything. I'm not sure if it's because I didn't look long enough or if uh, just no one has done this research, um, how many times US military advisors have entered a country and it not led to combat troops
0: on the ground? Oh, I would suggest that that's rare. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was November 7th. And just as a correction, the current limit actually is 3,100 troops.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but in a congressional hearing that... Um, Reuters reported on on November thirteen. A top U.S. Gen- the the headline is top U.S. general Mulls sending advisors with Iraqi ground troops. Mm-hmm. So we're not just talking about um, involvement with training the Iraqi army. We're talking about American soldiers actually accompanying um, Iraqi ground troops on aggressive missions. So.
1: Yeah I mean, you've also got uh, just to, uh, to localize it for a second. You've got Australia uh, Mr. Wartime Prime Minister Tony Abbott wanting uh, talking about sending uh, Australian special forces on the ground there. Um, it's not going to be long before you see American combat troops.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially with this particular general in his congressional hearing saying um, that uh, 80,000 trained and competent troops, are required to retake Mosul, um, a Sunni city in western Iraq that ISIS are now in control of, mm-hmm. um, and also to push them back to the Syrian border. So that, to my mind, sounds a lot like setting out the parameters for increasing U.S. involvement. And I'd be very surprised if you don't have. Um, tens of thousands of American ground troops involved in active combat sometime over the next few years.
1: Yeah. and it might not happen immediately, but...
0: <laughs> yeah, I think, as I was saying to you a little earlier on, I think what this is indicative of is the fact that Obama really at this point is a lamed up president. Yeah. Having lost the elections as badly as they did, Um, He is now faced with a hostile Congress where the Republicans are firmly in control of both the Senate and the House of Representatives. And he's really not calling the shots anymore. Um, And I think what you've got in America is a foreign policy establishment that will obviously outlast the current occupant of the White House. And they are determined to control the Middle East. And I know that this is kind of, it sounds conspiratorial. it does it sounds like there are these dark forces but i don't mean to sketch that sketch it out in in that light like i don't think that these are people who are conducting secret nefarious plots to pull no. america into the middle east i just think the overwhelming majority of people who are important in the decision making about foreign policy in the united states no. are basically resolved to the idea that they're going to destroy isis and they're going to reassert American control over that part of the world. Yeah, in spite of overwhelming evidence that it's just a terrible idea. Yeah, and I think that the really interesting counterpoint to this is when there was talk about involvement in Syria in 2013, um, and the pushback from the public was just so firm and, and vocal. It was a really amazing thing to see people standing up at town hall meetings, haranguing their congressmen about the idea of going back into the Middle East in any way whatsoever. And Obama then famously put it up for a vote. Um, So I think that the foreign policy establishment learned their lesson. And the way to do it is to start out by saying, just the tip. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So now, uh, you uh, you may be wondering if you're listening to this, what the link between these two stories is, Rosetta and just the tip, um, and uh, and it came as we were discussing, um, this, uh, you know, the the gradual escalation of uh, Western military involvement in the Middle East once again, and um, and we were talking about okay, so it's it's. You know, it's the the loss of lives, it's the futility of it, and it's the complete waste of fucking resources. Um, And how much, Pat, did the uh, last Iraq war
0: cost America? So, um, according to Reuters, the US war in Iraq has cost 1.7 trillion with a T. Trillion is a thousand billion with an additional $490 billion in benefits owed to war veterans, expenses that could grow to more than $6 trillion over the next four decades, counting interest. Now, that's according to a study that um, Reuters reported on, on, I'm just waiting for it to come up, March 14, 2013. So give or take a few billion. But the numbers are astronomical. And at this point, having spent all that money, just looking at it in purely economic terms, the Americans have, to show for it, ISIS. Yeah. That's hardly a benefit, Pat. No, I don't think that's a benefit. <laughs> um, and I think that th- that made me colossally depressed. Yeah. I don't think I've read statistics... A billion euros to send a fucking probe onto a comet. As it is hurtling through space. That's how much you can spend to do something that cool. Yeah. With with
1: such potential to advance our understanding of the fucking universe we live in. What compared to the... I'm I'm still struggling to come up with a conceivable benefit of the Iraq war. I, Uh, I, I flat out can't think of one, because like, it's not as though there haven't been advances to, oh, for the human oh race. I mean, it's not, like, it's not as though wars in the past, terrible as they've been, have not resulted in advancement to the human race in terms of technologies and things like that. Um, I can't think of one from the Iraq war.
0: Well drones yeah (laughs) killer flying robots those have improved
1: they've they've improved out of fucking sight man you can't see them um yeah i'm not going i'm not going to chalk
0: that one up as a benefit no No. um what about russia's increased assertiveness oh that's not a benefit no that's a terrible (laughs) cost that's risking nuclear war now yeah Um, um what else was there i uh, China's increasing dominance and uh, it's uh, increased... And how little they've had to... Like, all
1: they've had to do is sit on their hands yeah. and watch America punch itself in the face.
0: Yeah, and uh, lend them the money to do it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, America now owes enormous gobs of money to the Chinese. Uh, so, look, clearly zero in the way of benefits. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the return veterans problem um, where you really do have people suffering from traumatic brain injury, and post-traumatic stress syndrome. Both of these issues are becoming increasingly well understood. Yeah. And the numbers are astronomical. Um, You've got enormous numbers of people. And, of course, the drug companies are pumping them full of medication, um, which is going to cost the US government a ton of fucking money and gives a fantastic new lever to a lobbying group that's not well known for its uh, humanity.
1: Yeah. You know what... um Uh, European governments aren't going to be uh, having to shell out for? Ah, gee. Post-traumatic stress syndrome for scientists who are putting a fucking probe on on a comet.
0: That's right. So we, I suppose, to kind of globalise this contrast in... Well, it's not even a contrast in humanity. That's what I was going to say. It's not a contrast in humanity. It's a depressingly consistent theme yeah the only time we ever really committed to these kinds of projects was when it was a cold war phenomenon yeah and so we were talking about it as if that was somehow a fantastic exception to the rule but actually when you think about it a bit more deeply it really or not even really deeply like it's really obvious that it was just an outcome of Of, of tribalism yeah it was still part of the rule (laughs) So, I mean, we have the ability and all of these capabilities to do these incredible things that really have all these fantastic side benefits, but we choose to spend literally 15, 1600 times more money yeah. just, uh, you know, moving sand around with million dollar missiles in the Middle East where people don't want us. They're not fucking interested. And I was saying also to Rod just earlier on, I should probably stop saying that, and but sorry. yeah, um, it just you feel like a bit of a douche if you're repeating yourself, <laughs> like it's the first time this has occurred to you. Do you know what I mean? But I suppose there's a, an element of artificiality about this that's inescapable. But no. that's like so a, like, a lot of a lot of times we are discussing things that we have discussed previously. We are rediscussing. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like in this global disclaimer, I will assuage my guilt somewhat for repeating things as if it's the first time. <laughs> in the future, from here on in, I'll save you the boredom. Um, so, um, you know, shit, man. I've lost have my you train have you of had... thought. <laughs> I've completely lost it. Um, 50, you spend 1,500 more times money yeah. it's moving sand around in the Middle East. And, hey, well, don't fuck it Oh, honest. that's what I was saying to you earlier on. Yeah. It's not as if, like, I think that the Iraqis are often framed as incompetent people. Um, we can't get the National Army up and running. Look how they drop their guns and run away when ISIS... It's kind of like, look, you need to understand the difference between a lack of competence and a lack of will. And the Iraqis are super competent when it comes down to it. There were Iraqis, of course, that were instrumental in killing a bunch of Americans. That's competent. A lot of them wanted to boot the Yanks out, and they did a very good job turning public opinion against the war by just constant attrition with things like impro- improvised explosive devices. The Shia Sadr militia was a very, very effective
1: militia. Yeah, Like, say what you will about the Americans. Their military, their army is, uh, is pretty fucking impressive. It is. Uh, so if you're, if you're being able to hold your ground in any sense, attritionally, guerrilla warfare or otherwise... This is not you're, not in, you're not incompetent.
0: It's not a question of competence. Yeah. It's a question of will. The simple fact is, is that Iraqis do not conceive of, well, they conceive of themselves first and foremost um, with a sectarian identity or a tribal identity. I would say, from what I know, the tribal identity is the most important thing. And that happens to be, that usually fits congruently into the sectarian jigsaw puzzle. And in the context of a country in upheaval, it plays out with sectarian warfare. And that's what they care about. The guys who ran from Mosul when ISIL came in, they were Shia. Mosul is a Sunni city. They weren't interested in defending it. So they busted a move. Honestly, I would do the same thing. If I was in an army that really was doing things that I didn't care about, and my family's back home and they need defending, I would certainly prioritize them.
1: Yeah instead of defending a, uh,
0: a city of people who have traditionally been your uh, foes. For, a, for an abstraction. Yeah. And, I mean, in many ways, nation-states are just silly abstractions, lines drawn in dirt, and you could actually argue that in Iraq. many ways the Iraqis are smarter because they refuse to submit to this silly abstract idea of a nation-state that the West would like them to have because it's convenient for us.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, Iraq, I think, is, the, is one of the best examples of the the flaws of the lines drawn on a map theory of the nation-state because any country where you put the Kurds, Shiites and Sunnis in the same lines within a map and expect them all just to get
0: along because you've drawn that line arbitrarily. Mm. Um, and My favourite thing, though, is when American congressmen talk about why can't the Iraqis just arrive at a political solution? The, the uh, unintended irony of a US congressman saying things like that in an indignant voice while the entire American political system has been ground to a halt for four years is just stunning. There's <laughs> no other word for it. It is an amazing thing that they can say that with a straight face. These people have real life and death issues at hand. Their political settlements mean a great deal to their respective communities, the sharing of power yeah. in, a, in a, a infantile political system, and the American Congressmen in a well-developed political system with every accoutrement of civilization just have no ability to do anything approaching what the Iraqis are having to do, not that they've been asked to. So you know, fuck the usual. US congressmen, man, they really are belly coast douchebags.
1: <laughs> well put. Um, so I mean, yeah. So that's uh, that's basically how we uh, we came to that very depressing uh, comparison, mostly on the uh, the allocation of resources for something that A has great benefit and B has great. Uh, well, what's the if if, uh, if the space probe has a great benefit to the human race?
0: Well, it's a uh, complete uh, corrosion of the best of humanity. There we go. That's what Iraq is. It's just a disaster for human beings. The ones on the American side and the ones on the Iraqi side. Yeah. It is a total fucking disaster. And it continues to be and seems to be getting worse. And... I just want to discuss one thing right about ahead. this. And this is what kind of wigs me out and worries me about it. It's basically the only real explanation for why we'd be so goddamn stupid is that it's an evolutionary instinct. We all share it. We all share a kind of an attraction to tribalism, um, um, a designation of the other, and, um, Uh, the idea of external enemies that must be um, contained. This is just part of human nature. And the question is, do you think we're getting better? Do you think that we have a chance of like bending the curve away from this Iraq shit towards this filet probe shit? Like that's the question. That is the
1: question. I mean, and it's like at the end of the day, for the most part, I think we're still just violent monkeys with brains that are too big for us to handle safely.
0: But we're building
1: like, ourselves systems. Yeah. Um, but at the, at the same time, I don't think, uh, you know, Iraq debacles notwithstanding, um, Rwanda genocide is notwithstanding... Uh, <laughs> serbian massacres notwithstanding actually now that i come to think of it there are a whole lot of things well okay what i'm trying to say is there is still an awful lot of really shitty shitty examples of the worst of humanity taking place um you know in so-called modern times but in general just a gut feeling i would say that the human race um is better today as a whole uh than it was Five hundred years ago, Most thousand definitely. years ago, most two thousand years ago. So I think we are. I think we are getting better. But here's the question: um, are we... Can, we, can we ever get uh, better enough to move beyond those
0: uh, violent monkey limitations? I'm not sure. Uh, what What concerns me though is that. Um, certainly we're better off than we were 100 years ago, definitely. Not just like technologically and that sort of thing I'm talking about. Yeah, but I mean, there's less violence in the world than there ever has been. Yeah. Now, at this point in time, less violent death than ever before. Nonetheless, it feels like we were better off in the year 2000 before those fuck sticks flew the planes into the buildings mm. and America collectively lost its mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah, actually, you'd say the 90s were a
0: very optimistic Peace and game. prosperity. Yeah. Peace and prosperity where all anyone cared about was Bill Clinton getting blowjobs in the White House. I wish for those days. I wish that the news was full of things like whether or not Clinton used a cigar on an intern. You know what I mean? Like that was infinitely preferable to the shit that seems to be brewing right now. Yeah. Which – I mean, globally they were, speaking they were, there's instability.
1: Still, yeah, there were still awful things that happened in the nineties. I think I just referenced a couple yeah, of them. The Serbian, sure. Serbia and um sure.
0: and Rwanda. But, but they weren't main yeah, games. They weren't
1: like a global fucking
0: yeah. No. I mean the Balkans were the Balkans, yeah. and the Rwandans were the Rwandans. And it didn't really call into question the entire fucking global system. Yeah. And at this juncture where you have just the the war in the Middle East expanding steadily. And you have the Russians really pushing in. I mean, we're not going to talk about this specifically today, but they are pushing troops straight into the eastern Ukraine at this point. Yeah. Like, those are events that have profound ramifications for global security and yeah. stability.
1: God, you have Mikhail Gorbachev telling anyone who will listen that we're
0: on the verge of another Cold War, if not already in it. Yeah. Um. So I'm, while I think that, yes, it is less violent now than ever before, there is a risk that actually it, we could take a few steps back, yeah. and I just hope that it's not ever with nuclear weapons, you know. So, yeah, yeah. On that happy note, yeah. Just, uh, just very quickly. I mean, uh, we
1: weren't going to discuss it in great uh, depth today, but um, we've brought up Russia a couple of times, mm. um, and I just uh, one of the uh, one of the things which interested me uh, for for news this week. Were the headlines about how uh, badly the Russian economy is just shitting itself at the moment, um, which is great. Which it, yeah, and um, not um, not going to go too far into it, but I just uh, thought it was um, it was interesting in the light of the the comments from uh, from Gorbachev about a, you know a new cold war is that uh, all the things that Russia has been doing this year, um, all of the sanctions that America and the EU Um, have put on them it seems like cold war just on fast forward Um, and hopefully it uh, will play out the same way and um, and Russia's economy will uh, will continue crashing to the point uh, where Putin just has to um well I (laughs) cry uncle yeah exactly so I, I think that's all we need to say about that one at the moment. Yeah,
0: it'd be nice, yeah. but um, might well be something worth doing the reading on for next week. Yeah, um, just to get the statistics because it'd be interesting to know what effect sanctions have when the West really gets together and says no. Yeah, well, bad, I mean, that, Putin. <laughs> bad Putin,
1: bad Putin. Like just rub his nose in the bottom line. Yeah, um, and like it'd be interesting to find out things like you know how much of it is um is the effect of the sanctions versus just Low, uh, low oil prices, low, uh, and those sort of things, which uh, Russia uh, depends on for a, a lot of its money, that kind of thing. Anyway, um, well, don't have those facts to hand at the
0: moment. So, so you had an interesting tidbit. Um, you have been travelling, yeah. And you're in Singapore, and you had this fascinating tidbit about riots that took place in Singapore relatively recently. That yeah, got- it was uh, it was, the, it was um, last December, um, and
1: yeah, I. Um, I lived in Singapore for a while, and I was uh, I was back there earlier this week visiting some mates. Um, and uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, sort of discussions that we had uh, were about these uh, these riots, which took place in a suburb called Little India, um, which is where I used to work. And um, and it just it was interesting to me how you've got uh, you've got riots in America and riots in Hong Kong and things like that. Um, and, uh, and they become global news. Uh, meanwhile, you can have riots in a country like Singapore and the world won't fucking know about it. Um, and, um, and it was just a, an interesting sort of uh, thought about the flow of news and why don't we hear about things uh, like that? Um, why don't we hear more stories um, out of Africa? It seems like there's sort of one African story a year. Um, and... Uh, and that sort of things. Um, uh, should I go into any of the detail of the uh, of the Singapore rise? I think or it's worthwhile. Yeah, I think it's
0: quite interesting. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. So it was uh, it was early December, uh, and um, and within Singapore, uh, you have um, all of these migrant workers from uh, India and Bangladesh uh, and places like that. Um, and not to put too fine a point on it, uh, um, a Singaporean mate of mine. Um, Basically, just he said, you know, they're basically slaves. Don't be mean to slaves, man. <laughs> they, they they get paid a pittance. They work like dogs, building all the skyscrapers and things like that. And they get one day off a week, which is Sunday. And uh, they tend to congregate in the suburb of Little India. Um, they'll uh, they'll buy their uh, their cheap beers and uh, and congregate in the parks and. Um, and then they'll go back to work on Monday and it, um, sort of, uh, all goes on. Uh, and so what happened, uh, this, uh, this particular Sunday, um, a, uh, a migrant worker was, uh, well, crushed underneath a bus basically and killed. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, th- thousands of the, uh, of the workers basically rioted, um, the police were called down. They were less than useless by all accounts. Um, there were even uh, there were even sort of witness reports of the um, of the sort of chief of the riot police uh, running away. Um, there were uh, there were police cars overturned. There were ambulances overturned. There were vehicles set on fire, um, and uh, it was all sort of. Uh, it only lasted the one night. Uh, I think for, uh, about 27 people ended up being charged um, and uh, and the world moved on without having really heard about it
0: so I've got a theory about this yeah and it basically I think comes down to whether or not a country's government considers that it has interests in a particular place yeah um, and if a for instance, the Australian government is not interested in a riot in Little India or in Singapore, regardless of how interesting it is. Yeah. I think the Australian media will basically take their cue from that interest or not, as the case may be.
1: Yeah. No, that's a fair point. Um uh, like Singapore is a real economic hub of Southeast Asia. Mm. Um but uh yeah, I mean, it doesn't have the, um, the economic or cultural ties of, say, uh, the US. So riots in Ferguson, for instance, Australian media will pick
0: up on. Yeah, um, but put it this way also, that it's not just a question of whether or not the government cares. It's a question of whether or not the government chooses to emphasise the trouble that's going on. And so it's actually you know, Singapore is an integral part of the Asian economy. Yeah. And uh, they're important to us that they remain stable. It's not a good thing for Asia if Singapore has trouble. So actually, I think there's probably an interest for the Australian government and most governments in Asia and around the world that have sympathies with the current system to not talk so much about any troubles in Singapore. Troubles in China, of course, are a completely different question, yeah. which brings us to the point of the fact that, well, the Hong Kong protests are still going on. Yeah,
1: they're still going on, but uh, who would fucking know? They, yeah. it's, it, they've just sort of dropped out of uh, uh, sort of mainstream conversation and, uh, and media coverage to a large extent. You can still find stories about what's going on if you, re- if you look, um, but there isn't the coverage that there was a couple of weeks ago. Um, and part of that, I think, is just the flow of news. Um, yeah. stories, stories drop off the front page uh, if they go on for a certain amount of time. It's just,
0: I think they drop off more quickly than they used to, though. Mm. And so apart from this influence of governments setting agendas for news, um, indirectly, albeit, I think there is this kind of um, um, ADD culture. I hate to use the cliche, but I feel that's like... That is a real phenomenon. And things just aren't as interesting for as long as they used to be. Yeah. Even when they're profound shit, like the first real democratic movement um, in a territory that is governed by a government who have a quarter of the world's population under their control (laughs) since the 1980s. I mean, that really is a massive deal. Yeah. That's not enough to keep us interested. And that seems crazy to me. Yeah.
1: Like we're just, uh, more people are clicking on the goddamn photos of fucking Kim Kardashian's ass. Um,
0: Probably. I clicked on that photo. I didn't. You didn't? (laughs) No. You refused? I refused. Bully, bully to you, man. I respect that. (laughs) Yeah, I clicked on it. Yeah. Um, I will say it wasn't so much to see her ass. I can't remember the reason, but it was just something to do with the fact that such a big deal was being made about that's, it. Well, like, that's that, why that's, I clicked on that's it. That's why I didn't click on it.
1: Right. Like if, I to, like if I wanted to see a nice ass, I'd watch some porn, man. Yeah, <laughs>
0: that makes perfect sense. And I'm of the same opinion, basically. Like... So I didn't really click it to see the ass. So I just like clicked it to see what everyone was on about. Yeah. And I wonder how much of the kind of clickbait clicking that goes on is motivated by that. Yeah. I mean, what I would say is that my interest was more cultural than it was prurient. <laughs> In my defence, and I'm being honest. Yeah. So, so that that's an interesting question. How many other meta cultural? <laughs> um observers are there are out there probably not many clicking on buzzfeed shit <laughs> i didn't go to buzzfeed until i heard people complaining about buzzfeed because you, you know but yeah that's another interesting phenomenon um and i think another thing that really influences the way that people consume news and what stays on the agenda and what doesn't yeah um you, I, you're a journo though for fuck's sake yeah why is there even a question about this you should be talking more <laughs> so your view, no, like it's,
1: it's uh, it really it it is very simple. It comes down to, um, it comes down to what people click on, what stories people read. Give them what they want. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what media is now. Um, and like we're sort of uh, a couple of editors and deputy editors that I've had have told me, look, the old way of doing things was you know the media telling people what we think they need to know. Um, read this, this is good for yeah, you. Yeah, it was like, eat your greens. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, and that just doesn't work anymore. Um, people, have, uh, people have realized, especially with the internet, that they don't have to eat their fucking greens if they don't want to. If they want to go straight to dessert and, uh, and look at pictures of Kim Kardashian's ass, then they, uh, <laughs> they can. Um, and so, uh, you know, what media is, uh, is trying to do now... Is, um, is just find
0: a way of giving people what they want. Um, the thing is, though, though, it's like... It seems to me the same phenomenon as, like, giving a child what they want to eat every day. Yeah. Because a kid is going to want ice cream for every fucking meal they have, yeah. right?
1: And that's exactly that's exactly what's happening. Um, yeah. And it's... Um... The thing is,
0: though, is that the kid will end up regretting it in the same way that we kind of regret it. I think everyone acknowledges that there has been a kind of decline in the quality of discourse. Yeah, uh, So we're like the kid complaining after we've eaten Mars bars for three days. Yeah.
1: I can't tell you the amount of people who have, um, you know, in discussions about me being a journalist have, have brought up, you know, the declining standards of the media and I have to agree with them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But, uh, you know, if I'm feeling particularly uh, combative, which I'm generally not, um, I'll I'll ask them, you know, what are the last five stories
0: that you've read online? Yeah, Uh, and I think that this is indicative of a more global problem, particularly, and it sort of touches on surveillance. I tweeted this the other day. I was quite proud of it. And I, I tweeted the following. The internet will give us exactly what we deserve. Yeah. I am worried about yeah. what we exactly deserve. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, I don't think we deserve particularly good things, if I'm being honest. Yeah,
1: because for most people, the last five stories that they read online will be clickbait garbage. And no
0: question. And remember, you've got to tell the story. Please tell the story about your cat article. Oh, fuck, the cat article. It's so on point, <laughs> so on point. Yeah,
1: okay. So um, uh, at uh, the first little uh, newspaper I worked at was... Um, it was a cool little paper called the Fraser Coast Chronicle um, up in uh, up in Queensland. It was a little local daily, um, and uh, and I covered some some um, amazing stories up there. Some some um, some stories that I was really proud of as a journalist, um, both in the content and, and how I was able to write them. Um, I would say probably my um, uh, probably my favourite story was a, um, a really in-depth interview with a bloke who had been a, uh, a police officer and the, um, the awful things that he uh, had seen on the job and how it gave him uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, what it did to him, his family, how he overcame it and all this sort of stuff. And I, it, it was a, um, a really powerful interview. I was really proud of how I wrote the story. And, um, you know, it did okay. People read it and I got a couple of compliments about it. That's Send me a fine. link to that, man. Yeah. Send me a link. Um, and um, on the other hand, there was this story about a missing cat. Um, <laughs> and um, it, was, uh, it was a cat that had gone missing down in Victoria, um, which is two states away from Queensland. Um, and, you know, for anyone who has a, a vague understanding of how big a place Australia is, it's a, you know, it's a long way. Um, but it had, um, uh, like a tag or something. Um, and it had been running around stray for, uh, for a few years in Victoria. Uh, someone was finally able to catch it, identify it and fly it up to Queensland. And it was finally reunited with its owners, like four years later or something like that. Um, the new owners were living in Harvey Bay and, you know, Nice little sort of human interest story, but there's
0: actually absolutely nothing particularly amazing about that. Yeah,
1: it's like it was a it was a human interest story to you know fill a hole in the paper, basically, um, and uh, and it became by a margin the most popular story for our website for that entire year.
0: <laughs> the incentives are so clear. So,
1: so that's. That's what I mean. Like you you write the stories that people, and people like stories about cats. That's what it comes down to. People would prefer to read a story about a a missing cat coming back. Yeah. Um, Then...
0: uh, And when when you're in an industry that is in as rapid a decline as the newspaper business is, and you see statistics that fucking clear, it's actually amazing to me, I suppose, with that anecdote in mind, that newspapers don't have more crap in them. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, some,
1: some newspapers do. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, but yeah. So that's uh, that. I think is yeah. Uh, I'm. I'd actually yeah. Wasn't even thinking Thank you for reminding me of that. No, that's cool, man. Because it was an amazing
0: um, example to me. Because you'd obviously done some really interesting sort of what you'd call hard hitting work up there. Yeah. <laughs> it was all blown away by the usual metrics of success. Yeah. Internet plus cat. Cat article. Internet plus cat equals success. There's a pretty good the one online publication that I would big up for being both intellectually stimulating but still popular and still kind of fulfilling some of the needs that you have for just fairy floss yeah. is slate.
1: Com. Yeah. Huffington Post tries to do a mix of it as well. Like they have some terrible fluff, mm. um, but they do have some good news and opinion as well. They totally um, do.
0: But Slate, what I think they do well is that on, they combine the two in yeah. a one. Like they have kind of subjects that you would think are pretty lowbrow, but they address them in a highbrow way. Okay. It's... Worth a read, Slate.com. It's owned by the Washington Post Group, I believe. Okay. Um, I listen to their podcasts. They're great podcasts. I'm sure they're listening to ours at the moment. So, (laughs) you know, David Plotz, uh, Emily Bazelon, all of you guys out there at Slate, our contemporaries, our colleagues, (laughs) we love your work. Um, So have a look at Slate.com. It's a reasonable compromise in many um, instances between the high and the low brow. Um, So, yeah, man. I feel like we've elucidated things pretty well. Yeah, I
1: think we've covered some territory there. I think that's uh, uh, about as far as we need to
0: go today. Okay. All right. Till next time. Till next week.